Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Cam. Thank you, uh, the people and of uh, Mount Gambier Baptist. It's great to be with you this weekend. Uh, it's been wonderful to speak yesterday at the Undaunted Conference, and we'll be kind of coming back to that theme tonight in around the theme of evangelism and ministry and mission across the globe. We want to talk about that tonight. But this morning, as I share with you, I actually want to jump out of the theme and into something different for this morning. So this is not just, this is not on the theme, it's not, it's not important, it's not on the theme of undaunted, but I actually want to talk to you about the power of small. So I mean, this morning I've been texting with my son, he's uh, uh, in Sydney, he's old enough to be buying a house, and uh, he's texting me this morning about a particular offer on a particular house, and it's really nice of him to ask me, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know, I'm his dad, he asked me, so a bit of, bit of shared wisdom this morning. And, and we think about those are... Uh, they're the really important decisions of life, aren't they? The really big decisions. And in Sydney, that is a really big decision. It's very expensive. It's incredibly difficult. And so we, and we think about those, those major decisions, like things like major kind of changes in your work or what you're doing. Five years ago, after running uh, Guyman Baptist Church in the southern part of Sydney, a fairly reasonably sized church, uh, my, my wife Jane and I felt that it was time um, under God and the providence of God and the leading of God to step out of running a large church and into Christian media ministry. Um, I was at a conference last year and I was chatting with somebody and we were just chatting away and in the middle of it, the sentence almost, he stopped and said to me, so what on earth possessed you to lead a large, a consistent uh, a church that uh, has a, a reasonable cash flow to step into Christian media, which is just probably the worst way to get supported in Australia at the moment. And I'm like, oh, uh, no idea, really. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, yeah, when you put it like that, that does sound like a dumb choice. But it's a, the, the big choices of life, who you marry, major uh, purchases, major shifts in your career, major changes. Many of you I've chatted to you over the last couple of days and said, how long have you been at, Guy, at, at, at Mount Gambier? And often you've said, oh, we moved here five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, and, and even the move to here. They're all big choices. And we tend to kind of, we tend to pull life together and say the big choices, the big decisions, the, the big things in life are the pivotal, life-changing parts of what we do. And yet I want to say to you this morning, the power of small makes the biggest difference. And if you're not sure what I mean, just hang in there. If at the end you're not sure what I mean, we need to talk. Here, here's the deal, the power of small. Uh, I, I was influenced in this a number of years ago when I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, which is where I'm going to start. And you kind of get some of this direction out of just saying that. Malcolm Gladwell's an interesting guy. He's an op-ed op writer for uh, uh, a large American secular magazine. He, uh, he's written several books, called one called Blink, another called Tipping Point, another called Outliers. Uh, I find them really interesting books. They're not actually Christian books. They're just books about life and observing life and how life changes and molds and some great examples that he uses. But the interesting thing is he apparently, and I've read this online, I don't know him personally, I've, uh, obviously, but I've read online that in writing this book, David and Goliath, he actually reconnected with his Christian faith. So down the track, you might read more from Malcolm Gladwell from a Christian perspective. But Gladwell's reflection in his book is, it's called David, the book is actually called David Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the, Battle, the Art of Battling Giants is the sub-theme of the book. 
And when he talks about David and Goliath, he actually gives a bit of a picture. Now, most of you will know the story of David and Goliath, so kind of retelling you or reminding you of it will seem a little tedious. But for those of you who are kind of not sure of the story, essentially the, 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 the troops, the armies of God, Israel, are on one side of a, of a large ravine or a valley of some description. On the other side are the perennial enemies of the people of God, the Philistines. And, they, you know, it's, a, it's an odd thing because we'll read again, we'll talk again later about it's spring, so they go out to war, which is a kind of odd, kind of war during when it's warm and then go home for winter. It's, you know, uh, anyway, that was the, the, the system of that time. And the two armies are lined up facing each other and the Philistines have a, a new approach. They send out this guy called Goliath. In fact, uh, the story is, is, is found in um, 1 Samuel 17. And it says in 1 Samuel 17, it talks about the weight of his armor and the size of his spear and the, the, the weight of the tip of his spear, which all sounds very impressive. The only bit we get is he was supposed to be over nine feet tall. This is one big boy. And he's, the, the, the strategy was, they're sending him out. He is basically saying, here I am, Philistine, uncircumcised, standing against you lot. Why don't you send your best guy out and I'll fight him and, uh, and uh, we, we'll, that, that will determine the battle. I mean, it's, it's kind of a helpful way. It's only, you know, potentially one person dies rather than hundreds. So it's not a bad strategy, really. Um, and and when, he's, when he's standing in front of the people, this day I defy the ranks of Israel um, and on hearing this, everybody in the Israeli army is frightened out of their minds. And so there's this stalemate, this standoff. Every day, Goliath's coming out. Every day is not just the point about him defying the Israel is it's not just about defying the fact that he's, he'll fight anybody or that I, I believe I can beat anybody, but I'm defying the God of Israel. I'm defying the people of Israel. I'm defying everything you stand for. Saul, as the king, doesn't know, what, doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to go out to fight. He can't find a volunteer, so there's this, there's this standoff. In the middle of this, there's this kid. He's probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s at best, maybe his late teens. His name's David. His two brothers are, are in the army, standing there looking at Goliath, and his dad says to David, because the internet was down at the time, and uh, the news feed wasn't working. And so he says to David, listen, how well know how your brothers are going. Here's some, here's some cheese. Here's some food. Go off. Give this to your brothers and bring them back a report about how they're going. So this the kid whose who's job is basically to stay at home and look after the sheep and et cetera of, of the family. Uh, he's not big enough to go off to war. He's, the, he's just the, the small younger brother that's at home. So off he tro troops. He turns up to the battlefront and uh, hands out the food, leaves the food with the, you'll see, with the, the supplier of the food, and goes off to see his brothers. Interesting, one of his brothers said, what are you doing here? Honestly, go home, you're just in the road. You know, that, that's the way he was thought of and treated. But the intriguing thing is, when, when, when David hears Goliath, and when David hears Goliath, his response um, to, to Goliath and what Goliath is, is saying is quite remarkable. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He is incredulous. He, he is angry. He's like, who do you think you are defying not just our great army or not just our great king? You are defying our God. And he is insulted 
by what Goliath says. So you know the story, don't you? Goes off to see Saul. Saul can, cannot find anybody else. Give this kid a crack. Essentially, I'm not sure what Saul was thinking. He must have been incredibly desperate. And so he, then he decides to dress David up in uh, in his arm in his armor in his kind of you know uh, fighting outfit, as it were. Now, interesting aside. This is not the point. Isn't it interesting that Saul wants to put on David his clothes, and David actually tries it on, tries puts it all on, and goes. This is just not working for me. Interesting thought, that, isn't it? This is, not, this is not working for me. I don't need any of that stuff. Off I go. He takes his sling and he, and he picks up, as you know, what did he pick up on the way? There we go, five smooth stones on the way out. And it's a quaint, quaint kind of, um, you know, because you know what happens in the end. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of quaint Bible school, Bible you know, kids story that we go, well, isn't that lovely? It's intriguing that when you start to do some research on slingers at that point of history, you start to get a better picture about what was going on. I mean, in fact, David, when he talks to Saul about wanting to go, he says, uh, but David said to Saul, your servant, that's himself, has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a, a, a bear came to carry them off, uh, I went and struck and rescued the sheep. So David's saying, I've fought lions, I've fought bears. This schmuck is no big deal. So David, David's not actually, uh, you know, the key thing is that God is the story, the hero of this story. We've got to keep that in mind. This is not just about David and how good he was. God is the hero here. God delivers uh, Israel. God delivers uh, David. God moves David into leadership. But in the midst of that, what we need to understand is what, what Saul sees as a kid what his brother sees as a younger brother, What's, what Goliath sees as an almost an insult that you would send this kid out to face me, was actually all a misreading of the facts. Hear, hear this that, uh, 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 that uh, Malcolm Gladwell does in his research. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice, but in, ex in experienced hands, the sling was a devastating weapon. Paintings from medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin as far away as the eye could see. And in the Old Testament book of Judges, the slingers were described as accurate within a hair's breadth. So while it's hard for us to understand, somebody spinning a, a, a bit of leather and launching a rock could actually be accurate. These people were de deadly accurate. The second thing to say is that not only were they accurate, these stones travelled at enormous speeds. In fact, uh, there's a ballistics expert, Anton Hirsch, um, from the Israeli Defence Forces, recently did a series of calculations why, in this century, you would do a series of calculations on slinging is slightly beyond me. Surely the Israeli Defence Forces have got better things to do with their time. But apparently that's what he did. And this is what he found out. The typical size stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 metres would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 34 metres a second. That is 130 kilometres an hour. When David, here's, here's a quote from, from, um, from Gladwell. When, when Goliath saw David, his first response was to be insulted when he should have been terrified. The one person standing in the Israel, Israelite troops 
that he had no defense against was in fact David. Power of the small. And for some reason, probably misplaced, uh, misplaced confidence, David has no problem with what he was about to do. Goliath would have had point something of a second to respond. And with a stone heading at that speed, it was like being shot by a gun. The power of small. The power of the, the person, the, the, the situation that we underestimate. The power of small in David re- helps us to recognize that there is so much more that begin to, can be done with the small. But here's the deal. It's also the power of small steps. So we tend to kind of look for the big steps, the, the big decisions, as I said before. And yet, every choice you make, every small choice, is not an isolated moment in time. It is usually a step down a path. Every time you make a decision, every time all of us make a decision, even the tiniest small decisions, they're actually usually heading down a path. And the question is, where is that taking us? You don't have to make, don't have to worry. The big decisions are in, in obvious. The big decisions are kind of clear. The big decisions don't take us by the surprise. The small decisions, the small changes, the small choices, setting us down a path, they're making a bigger choice, a bigger change than we think. Think about uh, Apollo 13 in 1917. Remember that? Uh, they, they, most of us remember that now because there's a movie called Apollo 13. It's a great, it's a great watch that was brought out a couple of years ago. At 200,000 kilometers of, from Earth, there was a disaster within Apollo 13. It had gone, it was on the way to the moon. It, they were hoping to land on the moon, yet there was an explosion in an oxygen tank. And when the explosion in the oxygen tank caused, uh, occurred, there was a loss of power, there was a loss of air, there was venting out of the, out of the spaceship. Uh, there was, there was a, protective tiles were blown off the outside, but critically, there was a loss of direction. And that loss of direction of just a couple of degrees meant that the trajectory back to Earth was out of place. Do you know the calculations were that Apollo 13, with just a couple of degrees, was going to miss Earth by 4,034 kilometers. Two couple of tiny degrees at 200,000 kilometers away meant that they were on a trajectory to miss Earth by miles and miles and miles. In other words, every step, every decision actually changes what the outcome will be. In 2 Samuel, there's another decision that David makes. And it's a decision that didn't have a particularly good outcome. In 2 Samuel 11, it said, In the spring, as I said before, the time when kings went off to war, David sent Joab with, with the king's men and the whole Israeli army, and they destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rahab. But David remained in Jerusalem. Small step. We've been winning all the time. I don't need to go. I'm going to stay at home. What did that small step change in David's life? The projection of David's life. What was the next few months and years going to be for David? You know, many of you will know the story. For those of you who don't, he says that he was on the top of the, of the building at night, looking over, sees a lady bathing, finds she's attractive, asks her back to his room, sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant. 
many, I've often thought of that as a kind of accidental thing, but one could actually ask when, when his, her husband is Uriah and he's actually listed in another part of Scripture as David's 30 great men, you actually wonder whether David knew about Bathsheba and was looking for her, that this was no accident. He invites her up, she falls pregnant. Then you know the story, don't you? David then decides he's got to cover his tracks. He's, he's, got, to, he's got to sort this out. So he gets Uriah to come back from the, the, the army, the front, to give him a report, uh, hoping he'll sleep with his wife and cover what has happened. Uriah, being a man of great strength, stupidity, or dignity, decides he's, not, he's going to sleep in the street, he's not going to sleep with his wife, and he goes back to the front. So David's now stuck. She's still pregnant. He hasn't slept with his wife. So what does David then do? He gets the commander to put Uriah at the front of the army so that he'll be killed in battle. Keep in mind, this is somebody who's described as a man after God's own heart. And he's made one small step which has started a set of actions. What then goes on, there's this day, Nathan comes and, and, uh, and challenges David. David repents. The child still dies that Bathsheba is carrying because that's what Nathan said would happen. And many of us think, okay, there's the end of the story. Isn't that terrible? David repented. It's good, but it's a terrible story. That's not actually the end of the story. Because what then happens is that one of David's sons, he had sons to different wives, Amnon was in deeply in love with a lady called Tamar. This is in 2 Samuel 13. And this is a horrible story because he's desperately in love with Tamar. He eventually gets her to come over. He, he takes advantage of her, rapes her, and then is disgusted by her and, and casts her out. David does nothing. This is known by everybody. And David's response to one of his sons raping his sister is to do nothing. Why is he doing nothing? Scripture never tells us, but I've got a guess. He had no moral authority. He was in no place. He couldn't call out Amnon because guess what? Everybody knew that's where he'd been. The decision not to go to war actually now creates devastation in his family. And it gets worse. Absalom, who is Tamar's brother, is so angry that he takes Amnon's life and then runs for the hills. Eventually, Absalom basically gets ingratiated back into the family and comes back to Jerusalem. But guess what Absalom does when he comes back to Jerusalem? He sits at the gate of Jerusalem and he hears all the complaints of all of the people. He's the church member at the door that just looks out for the whinging people. And what is he doing? What is he doing? He so detests his dad that he is trying to undermine him and eventually kick him out. You know what then happens? He gets an army together. He comes into Jerusalem. David has to run out of Israel to protect himself. and It's just an awful story to read as he runs. And who is he running from? He's running from his son, his own flesh and blood. And then what was done in secret with Bathsheba is actually repeated. Because these are not cute, nice stories. So Absalom becomes the king. Now David's run. And he says to his mates, what should I do to kind of cement the fact that I'm now the king? 
What, what should I do? What sort of public thing should I do? And his mates say this, set up a tent on the top of the building and sleep with all of David's concubines and wives to prove that you're now in charge. What was done in secret is now done in public. And David's humiliation is complete. Why did all that occur? Because of the small step David made, which started a journey down a path, which ended up in death, destruction, and the loss of his own kingdom. Now, you'll know that the story changes quite a deal over, the, over time because David end up, ends up coming back. Absalom dies in battle. And the amazing thing is, even when that happens, David's absolutely devastated by the death of his son. Small choices have long-term consequences. The small choices you'll make, I'm not being overdramatic, the small choices you'll make today, I don't mean that's going to end up with rape and destruction in your family, but all that is an example that the small choices that you make set you on a path and who knows where that's going to lead. And even if it's only slightly deviated from what God wants, from what we see from Apollo 13, a number of years down the track, you could miss the mark you're called to by thousands of kilometers in that sense. So what are the choices? What are the important things you need to do? This is all this kind of esoteric ideas. Let me land this in something slightly more concrete. What difference should it make today? I want to kind of say uh, at, at least four things that you ought to do in your life today around small choices that will make an enormous difference to your future. Here's the first one. Honour your commitments. Honour your commitments. Be true to your word. When I was just in college, years and years and years ago, in fact, it's so long ago now, it's a worry. It's in theological college. I was working at a church in Hornsby. It was a, a church not much bigger than Mount Gambier Baptist. It was a church that had a big split a couple of years before. It was really, really hard work. And I'm the youth pastor in the church. I'm going to college. I'm trying to pull this thing together so it's not a complete disaster. I'm working pretty hard. We, do, we don't have any kids yet. We're just, we're just at home and we're beavering away, essentially. And in the third year of college, our son, Tim, was born. And so it, here's this process of just a young family, small, middle-sized church, doing the college thing, trying to get through. I get a phone call. Now, you've got to keep in mind that after two years of college, Hornsby asked me to stay to the end of fourth year, and I committed to do that. I said, I'll stay till the four years of my college, and then let's see what will happen. So we're, here, we're there, and I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the four years. I'm working away at this small, medium-sized church, and then I get a call from Melbourne. The call from Melbourne is one of the largest churches in Melbourne, Baptist churches in Melbourne. They just had a change in leadership. The guy who was the youth pastor was now the senior pastor. Uh, they sent the, a key person in the church to come and meet me and ask whether I would like to, to consider being the youth pastor. Some conversations were happening. I thought I really should tell my senior pastor in Hornsby. So I go to see John Haig, who's, I haven't seen him for years, but he's a, he's a good friend. And, and I said, listen, John, this church in Melbourne has asked if I could consider coming there. I just want you to let you know that this conversation's happening. John says to me, oh, it's a great church. You should take that, Carl. I wasn't sure how to take that. You're, you're saying I should go. Is that the point? 
Um, he, he obviously didn't want, he was just being gracious. He was being kind. He was basically saying, this is a great opportunity. This won't come up again. You should do it. Here's the choice. You know, I, I could have moved my college work to, New, to Melbourne. I could have, you know, taken the role. And I actually rang them up and said, you know, Hornsby's been really good to me. And I committed to be here till the end of my fourth year. And that's what I'm doing. So I've got to say no. You know what's really interesting about that story? Six months later, they came back to me and said, we still haven't found anybody. We're willing to wait. You still want to come? And so basically, I finished college in November. I graduated late in November. The next day was my father-in-law's birthday. The day after that, we drove to Melbourne. I had five fabulous years in a wonderful church. But you know what was key in all of that? Honour your commitments. People trust you when you honour your commitments. God's word says to us, be true to your own word. Be true to what you say you will do. Honour your commitments. Secondly, I want to repeat what I said yesterday morning to the men. Apologies, men. I was nearly going to drop this, but I just think it's really important to say. Tell the truth. Uh, this is quoting a guy called Jordan Peterson. Not, everybody, not everybody's a great fan of Jordan Peterson. He says some great stuff, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I spent it said it about this yesterday morning. But his point is this. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. Be honest in how you react with people. Peterson said, I found myself spinning everything I said. I kept telling people what they wanted to hear. I kept telling people things that would make me look good. It wasn't necessarily lying. I was just putting a spin on everything. And I realized that this was so unhelpful for myself and for life. And so I came to the point where I said, you know what? I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to be honest. That doesn't mean be rude. It doesn't mean to be obnoxious. Be honest. Let me ask you a question on this point. When you know that somebody near you, husband, wife, child, family member, good friend, employee, fellow employer, when you know that they've told something that you find out is not exactly true, what do you think? What does it say about their character when you know that's the case? It changes, doesn't it? Suddenly everything they say, you're second-guessing, you're not so sure about. Here's the question. Do you want people to think about you like that? Because every small step, not to honour your commitments or not to be truthful in what you say, undermines who you are. Fourth, fourthly, or thirdly, rather, guard your integrity. Guard your integrity. Who are you or where do you go when nobody's watching? And there's moments when you're alone with your phone, where do you end up? And there are moments when you're alone with your, that's probably with a smartphone, a five-year-old Nokia, it doesn't count, you can go anywhere you like because it doesn't go anywhere. Where do you go in those moments? When you're alone with your thoughts, where do you go? Who you are is kind of how you behave when nobody's watching. And only you and the Spirit of God speaking to you can actually tell you about that. What does it say about your heart and where it stands? Honor your commitments. Tell the truth. Guard your heart and live with discipline. Uh, discipline is such an easy thing to kind of push aside. It's so easy just to be kind of slack in life. How disciplined you are, are you around reading God's Word, around praying? How disciplined are you around what you eat, what you drink, how you behave, 
how you think. We're not saved by the hard works of discipline. We're saved by the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus. That, that's how we're saved. We don't earn our way into the kingdom of God by being super disciplined people. But here's the deal. We are called to live out the, the standards of the kingdom of God. Every one of our choices not to honor a commitment, every one of our choices not to be truthful, every one of our choices not to guard our heart, every one of our choices to allow discipline to fall away because it's easier, that is not a decision in a moment. That is not an isolated choice. That is not one small matter that doesn't count. That is another step on a path. And if I could be so bold and, and a little extreme, I guess, in what I'm saying, it could be a path to destruction. I have good mates of mine that I still are friends with. One whose marriage has broken up and another whose marriage is still back together. Who failed morally in their marriage. And if you think the moment of failure with somebody else in a marriage starts in that moment, you're wrong. It starts way back here. It starts way back in those choices. It starts way back in the decisions of where you spend your time, your energy, your focus. The smallest of steps. Every small step is not an isolated choice. Every small step is a step on a journey. Now this can sound a little harsh. Maybe some of you may think it sounds almost a little judgmental. But let me kind of give you a, a kind of picture of the grace of God in all of this. Let's go back to the story of David. It's an awful story, isn't it? It's just a terrible story. There's just so many levels of it that leave us feeling, how can God ever think that this is a person after his own heart? Think about all of those choices that David made and where he ended up. In the midst of all of that mess, there's a moment of incredible grace that kind of missed, I've missed for years in this story. It's actually found in 2 Samuel 12, 24 in the middle of this whole situation with David and Bathsheba, Uriah and Nathan the prophet, the baby dying and all of that. Let me read this verse to you. Then This is chapter 2, 2 Samuel twelve twenty four. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they called him Solomon. Greatest king that would ever lead Israel. The, great, the king over the Israel when it was at its largest. The person who was in a sense most influential in books like, well, Ecclesiastes is not so positive, but certainly Proverbs. He, this kid comes out of the joining together of David and Bathsheba. There's always grace. There's always grace. God's grace is always ready, always open. You might be here this morning and you may be thinking, you know, I'm not just one small step down a path. I am a long way down a path. Nobody around me here knows this morning uh, and I've been faking it for, for ages, weeks, months, even years. Nobody thinks I'm a great, you know, Sunday morning Baptist church attender and I know in my heart I'm so far from that that I'm probably closer to David than anybody in this room thinks and, and God is probably angry with me but I'll keep turning up the church God loves you 
God's grace is available for you. God is ready to wrap you in his arms. God will extend grace and maybe even a fresh start like the picture of Solomon where you sit. Is this your moment? Do you need to experience God's love, grace and mercy afresh? It's not about guilt or accusation. It's about God's love expressed into your life. God loves you. God calls you to be careful in every step you make because it's a step down a path. The small things matter in your, your commitments, in honoring your commitments, into what you say, in guarding your heart, in your discipline in your life. But in the midst of all of that, there's grace. God's grace extended to you. Shall we pray? Just be in an attitude of prayer. What's God saying to you this morning? Do you need to experience that grace again in a new and fresh and vibrant way? Maybe a prayer might help you in this moment. If you're willing to, willing to express your need to get back with God, to repent of the steps that you've taken and the path that you're on, to renew and refresh your relationship with your Holy Father. Why don't you use these words? I want to lead you in a prayer. Don't say these out aloud. This is just between you and God. This is your moment. This is not our moment. This is your moment. Your moment to speak to your Heavenly Father. If you want to experience His grace anew and afresh this morning, why don't you pray this with me? Not out loud, just in your heart. Lord, I come to you this morning. I'm really sorry for how I've lived. I'm sorry for the choices I've made. I'm sorry I'm far from you. Lord Jesus, today I start again. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for a fresh anointing in your spirit. I ask for a new start. Thank you that you hear and answer this prayer and help me to live what I say I believe. Amen.